we are doing something that I think I'm really excited about. I hope you will be too. We're starting a new series. So let me first of all ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 18. Our series will be going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, we titled the series Church, A Mess Worth Making. Um, the Corinthian church is very messy. And as I thought about what to tell you this morning as I introduce a new series, my, my fear is over telling you things. And then you all start blurring out right when I get to the good stuff. So I'm going to try to parcel out the information as we go. Um, and of course through the, the series as well. But Corinth is a church, or is a, is a city, that is very interesting. It's very similar in some ways to America. More than any other city of that time in that area in, in Asia Minor or in Europe. And here's why. I said this a few weeks ago. At 150 B.C., it was a Greek community that was wiped out by Rome. And for 100 years, Rome would not let anybody settle there. So around 50, really like 47 B.C., Julius Caesar himself founded Corinth. And they did, he did this for several reasons. One was a, is a great area. I won't talk about it right this second, but it's a great area for commerce and explosion, kind of a boomtown location. And then for Rome, it's a great way to get rid of the people that they're ready to kind of move on out of their area. You'll see in our passage, for example, there was an edict later for Jews to leave Rome. So Rome was constantly trying to thin itself of who was there. Retired military. People they didn't have land or title or name. We'd go to Corinth and th hopefully, the theory would be, thrive. It's a boom town. And what you find with that is it's very plural in its religion. Like it has a ton of religions, a ton of mindsets, um, wealth. There's very poor people, very rich people, slaves and free. So it's this really interesting group of people. One commentator said it's really close to being postmodern. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, and that's one of those words that's loaded. Everyone's got a different definition. But just have this in mind when I say it. There's not one agreed upon reason for life. Okay, Everyone had different reasons for what they were doing. And that really plays into the letter and why it's being written. And, and the question as we look at Acts 18, why I'm starting there is Acts is where the story of Corinth begins. We learn about Paul in the book of Acts. And in Acts 18, we see why he went to Corinth and how that went in the beginning. And also we see why Jesus wants to settle Corinth as well. So it's really an interesting passage. So if you'll look with me at Acts 18, look at the first 17 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And just FYI, we've tried that as a method of, of evangelism. Uh, that line doesn't work as much in modern times as it did back with Paul. Sorry. Okay. Back to verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. 
His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And then now for the letter we're reading, the very first verse of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who has your people, and you pursue us, and you save us, and you rescue us. Often we resist you. Often we get caught up in the world around us, just like the Corinthians did. And we pray this morning your spirit would open our eyes to fully grasp more and more your gospel, your truth, your love, that we would walk with you every day of our life. Amen. I don't know if you saw the article this week, but the, the popular rideshare company Uber, they're doing a pilot program in Pittsburgh with the driverless cars. Now, all of us have been hearing about driverless cars for some time, I think, if you paid attention to the news. The idea is there in Pittsburgh, they're going to have these cars that they've made that have no driver pick people up. And because it's a pilot program, which is an ironic term, they they're going to have free rides. So it's kind of tempting. You're like, well, I would rather have a human drive me somewhere, but it's free. And then the car will show up, and they'll get in, and they'll drive off. Now, because of laws, there will be a human being in the car, like presumably able to grab the steering wheel if need be, right? That's the idea. But for the most part, to test this, that car is driving around town on its own. Now, parenthetical story. When Emily and I were in driver's ed, we were uh, at Edmond, and we went to the UCO Driver's Ed, and it was those really old-looking cars that don't, you don't need anymore, but they were now uh, Driver's Ed cars. They had made them to where they had steering wheels on both sides. One of our friends in Driver's Ed had an accident. She was driving, and she hits the gas instead of the brake and wraps the car around a pole. But here's what's the most amazing thing. There's an instructor sitting right there with his steering wheel and his brake, but that didn't stop the wreck. Not everyone was uninjured. This isn't a tragedy. But it just reminds us that just because someone's sitting there who can maybe take over a wheel at some time doesn't mean that in the moment of disaster that's going to happen. Right? Where am I going with this? I can't, I'm just really amazed at Uber. Can you imagine like the guys talking to you? Yeah, this is amazing. I've been doing this all day. You're my fourth ride. And, and all of a sudden, some accident ensues. 
Is he going to have the, or she, the wherewithal to like take over the wheel? Okay. Now, I don't know how many of you have looked at the title of our sermon, but it has a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek. Uh, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. Right? We all love country here in Stillwater. So we titled this, Jesus, keep the wheel. I don't want him just grabbing the wheel when I decide there's a disaster. I think the Scriptures teach that we really want Jesus to be the one driving us. Okay? Have this vision. The father in the driver's seat who lets the child steer the last three blocks home, right? And the child thinks they're driving, but the, the father's really letting them not drive, but they're thinking they are. And then they get in and say, Mommy, guess who drove home? I did. And the dad's winking and the mom's winking. That's what the Christian life really is. God's in control. And what I hope we'll see this morning is that uh, negatively, we really, here's who we are in the Uber story. We're the car. That's kind of weird, because usually technology in our minds is better. But we're like the ones who think, hey, I think we've got this. The technology is pretty advanced. I've worked really hard in my life. I'll drive around the city. And God, you sit there in the driver's seat, Jesus. And if I make a, a major error, you can grab the brake and the wheel. Think, who's just the driving cat? Now we're going over the cliff. Now I'm ready for you, Jesus, to brake. And he's saying, that's not how it works. That's just not how it works. When I come to you and I save you and I redeem you, you're mine. And, I, and you are to have, let me have complete control. So cheer up. right? That's what the idea of Corinthians is about. It's, it's about authority. The Corinthian church loved the idea of, of Christ, and, and hopefully most of them were in Christ, but they had a really big struggle of, of trusting which authority and knowing who to follow. And that's what brings so many questions for their uh, their lives in this book. And what we're going to see this morning is that we are to give Jesus, this is cheesy, the wheel. Okay? Can you remember that? That's at least going to stand out in your memory. What was the sermon about? Jesus keep the wheel. Can you all say that? I, could like, I can close right now in prayer. That's perfect. So we're going to look at Jesus is in control, not only, when, not only in conversion, but in our lives. But he starts with, the religious people. And I want to start with the religious folks in Corinth. So looking at Acts, I made the major mistake of turning the page and not saving it. There we are. It's interesting how Paul begins his ministry is to religious people. What do I mean by religious people? Uh, I mean specifically God-fearing, right people. Well, let's look at Paul himself. I, I don't have a ton of time to spend on his biography, but Paul, if you know anything about him, he gives his biography in Philippians in Acts and other locations, Galatians, he was a person who from a very early age was set apart by his parents to, to be exceptional in the church. Right? He was circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, which they had no control over. But he was, he was raised under a teacher named Gamaliel, if I'm saying that right. Gamaliel, Gamaliel, I don't know. Anyway, go look it up. And so he's trained as like a like kind of like a Navy SEAL. Like he is that guy for Jews, right? He is a he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he's got it down. He says, as to the law, blameless. In his mind, he followed the entire law. And so he's going about his life really intent on being a good religious person. Now, one of the things that scholars would say is Gamaliel would look at the Christian movement as it was coming up and say, they might, I mean, we're not going to persecute them. They might be right. There's sort of a wisdom there. Like, what if 
they're correct. Paul would say, I'm persecuting them. I'm going to go above my teacher. And he was there if you, in Acts at the stoning of Stephen. He was actually overseeing the death of Stephen. So Paul was a bad dude in the first part of Acts. His name was Saul. And you know the story, maybe. On his way to Damascus, Jesus in Acts 9, and every now and then in the uh, book of Acts you see Jesus' words. And in Acts 9, Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And listen to Saul's response. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And in that moment, Paul would say he was converted. He went from being a religious, having it all together, antagonist of Jesus to someone who is completely undone. There are three locations where Paul describes himself in the New Testament variously. At one point he says, I am the least of the apostles. Okay, that's, that's humility. That's right. He sees that maybe of all the apostles, he's the least. In another location he says, I am the least of God's people. Even more humility. Now he's measuring all Christians and saying, I see my sin and I realize I'm the least of those people. And then there's another place where he says, I'm the chief of sinners. So for Paul, whatever went on in his conversion, in his growth in Christ, he never once again thought of himself as being anything because of his own conduct. He never once fell in the trap again of thinking, it's my behavior, my conduct, which is winning God's favor for me. You would think, I mean, he is the most productive apostle of them all, right? And you'd think that would puff him up just a little bit, but it doesn't. So, for you, are you a religious person? Are you one of those folks that you, you have it together? You, I remember when I was doing youth ministry, I met another guy. Who, I, he would say, I never missed a quiet time. Like, for his whole life, like as far as back as he can remember, every morning I had a quiet time. That was really amazing. I highly recommend fellowship with the Lord. Let's get let's, the word quiet time. You can change it if you want to fellowship with the Lord. Highly important. But don't measure your faith by that. How are you measuring your standing with the Lord? How do you do it if you're a religious person? Don't we all, it's the lingo, it's the length of time since that one sin we struggle with. Maybe it's been a month, a year, five years, a week, an hour, but we measure ourselves by something. And we, and we don't maybe do it consciously, but it's happening. And to the degree that it's happening, we're lowering our reliance on Christ and our rest in Him alone. And for Paul, his religiosity led him to be intense, but Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. But there's other religious people in here. That's just fascinating. Um, if you look at our passage, Paul says in verse 6, I already read it, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It reads like not one Jew was converted, right? But then you look down, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and his whole household believed. Like For me, I'd be like, I saved the ruler of the synagogue. Like That's, that's awesome. And Paul, that doesn't shake him, right? So here you have Jews who are religious being converted. You also have, at the very end of this passage that we looked at, Sosthenes being beaten. Why was he being beaten? 
We don't told in Acts, but when you look at the first verse of 1 Corinthians, and our brother Sosthenes, that presumably as the new ruler of the synagogue, he also was starting to have affinity for Jesus and walking with Christ. And so Jesus is pursuing the, the religious person. And he's trying to wake them up. And so the question for you and I is, have you had that experience? Has Jesus pursued you? Has he found you? Where are you in regards to Jesus? At the very end of our letter to 1 Corinthians, it's called a greeting. I don't know why it's at the end. Uh, it's kind of another joke that doesn't go over very well. But I'm going to read it. Even though you never read the last line of a, of, a, of a book on the first day, I'm doing it. Okay, Paul says this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Maranatha, come. How do you view Jesus? Do you want Him to come? This is a great test of whether you're just playing at religion or not. Are you longing for Him? Is He rescuing you? Or is it sort of this thing you do? My prayer is that not only by the end of this discussion, but maybe this series as well, we'll just continually come back to this idea and want to fall into His arms. But let's talk now about Jesus' pursuit of the irreligious. Because quite frankly, there is no difference between the religious and the irreligious person. right? Now, I'm using that word irreligious I'm kind of to mean someone who doesn't ascribe to one religion. Okay? An irreligious person could be an atheist, an agnostic, or one that goes, I like them all. I think they're all pretty awesome. Some days I'm this, some days I'm that. And you have that in Corinth. In Corinth, the, the, um, let me try to explain a little bit about Corinth here so you'll start to understand what's going on. Because Jews were sent to Corinth, there's a synagogue. Greeks came to Corinth. Romans came to Corinth. And quite a few other na nations came to Corinth. But also, the old Greek version of it had like 50 different temples. One temple, and they believe that the Romans came in and some of them were resurrected one of those temples had body parts. And they found, you can find there's like a museum there now of like feet and legs and whatever body part you're having trouble with in your life. And they would have a clay person, a clay person, a human sculpt that in clay. How do you, you don't sculpt clay, you, whatever you do with clay. And then they would take that to this temple and pray to the God of whatever that that body part would be healed. And we actually know there must have been a lot of sexual venereal diseases because there's a lot of like there are a lot of clay genitalia in this in this uh, museum. That's the only time I'm ever using that word in the sermon. So notes, take it down. So the so the point is, it's almost like I'm not even of that religion, but I'm hurting, so I'll take this clay foot or whatever and pray to the god. And then they took the clay home and put it in their their room. And there's just multiple religions, and it's interesting. Look at verse four. The low-hanging fruit for Paul as a missionary are the Jews. Okay, The Jews are scattered in the Old Testament. And by the New Testament time, they've probably developed communities. More had maybe left for business purposes. Um, and, and obviously, we know they've been shipped to Corinth or at least outside of Rome. So you have synagogues. You have Jews. And for Paul, for him, it made most sense to go into a new town and preach the gospel to Jews because they at least knew that there might be a Messiah. That language made some sense. Look at verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Makes sense. 
But listen to who the uh, people he was persuading. And he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Wait a minute. So you're telling me there's like, I just have this Greek people eating popcorn going, this is a fascinating religious ceremony you're doing. Like, I'm not Jewish, but I'm totally comfortable in this environment, dude. This is awesome. That's the vision I have of the plurality of Corinth. And we have that in our own midst. And it's not just in the church, it's outside the church. People of just religion has kind of become cool again. We're, that's part of postmodernism. It, but it's not going to have ownership over you. That's where we're different. That's where the church is different. You can walk up to the average person and say, are you religious or are you spiritual? And in postmodern culture, the answer is, yeah. I have a deeply personal spirituality. But when you ask them, is it, is it the one true form? Is it the meta-narrative? Is it the meta-story? The answer might be, well, no, it's my own personal way. Everyone has their own way. But Paul says Jesus is the way. And what's fascinating is when you study Corinth and you think about how scholars would say it's like kind of a combination of, uh, it's maybe a dramatic thing, of course. Scholars like to be dramatic, right? Scholars that are in the room. It's, it's L.A. meets Las Vegas meets New York all together. I don't know. But here's why. And I'll just give you this two-second reason and then we'll move on. Imagine the Mediterranean in your head. You, have the, you know the boot for Italy? There's this boot for Italy. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, this is just a way to get you off, and then we'll get back into the sermon. Well, the next thing over is Greece. It's like a little down thing hanging down, right? And then there's this little isthmus, and then there's the Peloponnese Island, and then it comes around to like Israel and North Africa. Where Greece is, there's an isthmus, and then there's the southern part of Greece called the Peloponnese Islands. And at that isthmus, I love saying that word, that's where Corinth was. And why does that matter? At that time, and really for probably 500 years, ships could not sail very safely around that bottom island, the Peloponnese. So they had to go into the inlet to the isthmus. Everyone want to say isthmus with me? Some would say it means neck in Greek, and that some would think that was the original one. They would go in with their ship, instead of going around and risking disaster, all the cargoes offloaded and taken on this four-mile road on the isthmus, to the other side where that company might have a different ship waiting or where smaller ships might actually themselves be loaded up as cargo and sent across. And so it became the east-west trade route for that area, for, for the known world. And so it had tons of stuff coming in. That meant manufacturing survived there. And also, all these people hung out longer. Like they had to wait till that cargo went all the way across. So it just is kind of exciting, wild time. And for Paul, and for most church planters, it's like, that's where I'm going to share Jesus. And I, one of my favorite places in the entire Bible, and I read it quickly so you wouldn't pay too much attention so I could bring it up right now, is this place in Acts 18, verse 11, no, verse 9. Look at that. And as you're getting ready to look at that, I'm about to read it, understand something. Jesus is talking. Okay? So here is Jesus telling Paul something amazing. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. For I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus is saying, not I have many in this city 
whom I hope will be converted. Okay? Or I have many in this city who at one point made a profession and it looks like they're sticking to it. He says, there are many people in this city, and by the way, Paul knows the Christians. So I think Jesus is talking about people Paul doesn't yet know who will be converted. And he is saying, they are already my people, possessive. Are you one of Jesus' people? What does it take? All you have to do is say, I believe and fall into his arms. Is that something you've done? Is that something you do regularly? Is that how we live? Or do we fight? We had a long morning. I don't want to go much longer, so I'm going to start to wrap us up right here with a story that is intense, but you'll, I think, maybe enjoy it, maybe not. There's a, a church planter in Los Angeles. Now, he's like Paul. This is a, a person uh, that I've actually never met, but he used to do RUF, and we're on the same listserv, and he said we could share this story. He went into uh, L.A. to share the gospel with people like my brother and his wife who are trying to become you know, actors and write, screenwriters, etc. And they're having a meal at a fourplex and they're having a barbecue, and for some of you that don't drink, you can ignore this, because they were drinking scotch at the same time as having a barbecue. Now, I do like scotch, but I can't imagine drinking a barbecue. So, anyway, but I would, if you invite me over. <laughs> so, they're having this time, and him, this guy, his name is Tim, is trying to be a great pastor. He says, hey, Jason, this is his neighbor, what is it you do for a living? Oh, I produce films. Now, Part of being a church planter, and I think Shane does this at RUF, and I try to do this as a pastor as well, you want to really get into people's lives. Like, it's not just great, you produce films, that's cool. He says, awesome. Like, my wife and I want to see these films. Like, we want to watch them and study them and get to know you. And, of course, he's probably thinking, you know, learn your worldview, what you're kind of trusting in. And he says, so can we do that? And the guy kind of blows him off for a little bit. Finally, he says, dude, I make adult films. No, I had to clean that up a little bit. So then, this church planner is like, is there any more scotch? Um, he says, fast forward a few months, that, ma- that neighbor's live-in girlfriend uh, has a stroke. She goes through months of rehab, and they bring her meals. They watch her during the day. He says, it sounds romantic, but it was very difficult. She has open-heart surgery, brain surgery. Part of her scalp is attached to her leg to keep it alive has another stroke. He says, predictably, all the hot-looking friends disappear from their life. And eventually, Jason calls him on a Sunday morning and says, can you come visit us in the hospital? None of our friends will come to see us there. So Jason says, sure. Or Tim, I got the name. I'm sorry. Jason's the neighbor in the hospital with his girlfriend. Tim's the church planner saying, yes, I'll come to the hospital. But he's honest in this email. He didn't really you know, want to. It's hard. But he does. He says, I show up to UCLA Medical Center he has to like wear a, some sort of a hazmat suit or he's being sarcastic, I can't tell. Because she has shingles and staph and lesions all over her body. And he just sits down. And remember, at this point, they've never had any spiritual conversation. And he says, all I need to do is say, can I pray for you guys? And they say, sure. And he says, um, this is his language. I started praying a whopper prayer with zero thought of contextualization. That's church planter speak. Let me tell you what he said. 
I basically prayed like I would with any of you guys in my church without thinking this guy makes these films and is a total unbeliever. And he prays and he says, and I start weeping in the middle of this prayer. And at the end of this prayer, both Jason, that's the neighbor, and his girlfriend are weeping as well. And Jason says, if I knew Jesus was like this, I would have considered Christianity earlier. Tim, the church planner, says later, it it dawned on me later, he didn't say if I knew Tim was like this. Or if I knew Christians were like this. He says, if I knew Jesus was like this. Jesus was in that hospital room weeping with the pornographer and his dying girlfriend. That is a loving Jesus. Now, she got better months later at their home, and he's visiting with them again, and she says, I want to go to your church. And so at the end of the story, I don't know if they've come to Christ yet, but here's how he describes the front row of his church on this particular morning. There's a musician off the tour, and he doesn't tell us their name, but I think we might know them. There's an, um, an actress from Mad Men. There's this gentleman, the neighbor, and his girlfriend who are there. They're a heroin addict. And he says, next to the sweetest Christian couple you've ever seen. And these are the people. And he says, Jesus said, these are your people. And why? Is that Jesus to you? I mean, is that your experience with him? That he loves you? That he rescues you? That he cherishes you? Whether you are in the irreligious camp and you feel like Jason, the adult film guy, which I doubt any of you are in that camp. If you are, let's talk. Or, if you're the religious person who thinks, why does this even matter? I've got, my, I've got it all figured out. We all are in need of Jesus. Not just once in a while when we look like we're about to have an accident. We need Jesus to keep the wheel. I feel so dumb saying that. But you will remember it. Who is driving your car? Who is in control of your life? See, for them, if they come to Christ, things are going to change that they already had. I don't think she planned on having two strokes at her young age. I don't think any of us plan on any of the things that happen in our life. Are you resting in Christ? Is He your authority? Let's pray. Jesus, we are prone to wander from You. As we come to this letter where Paul really shares who he is as a pastor, and we see a congregation that's messy, but yet truly wanting insight from you, that's us. We're messy. Where we really want growth, we want change, but we also want to keep our lives neat and orderly in the way they've always been going, and we can't have both. Lord, it's not that you want disorder, it's that we can't be honest with who we are if we think there's no sin. And we pray that today and this week, in this semester, and this year, I pray for this congregation to begin to know you, Jesus, personally as a rescuing, saving, loving, gentle Jesus. That you would reveal a Father that is warm and welcoming and that we would run into your arms and say, here's my life, take it. I'll do whatever for your glory. Amen.